Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Fans for Sports Network listeners, welcome to another episode of The Call Sheet, episode 11. This is Kevin Smith, your host. You can follow me on Twitter if you're inclined to do so at KTSmithFFSN, where I try to put up some really interesting things about the X and O's of football and try to talk a little bit from a coach's perspective. I'm the head coach of a high school program in Ocean City, New Jersey, 28 years now, Uh as the head coach there and a contributor both at fans first and SCN love talking about the game of football. Try to do that through Twitter here at fans first over on SCN, wherever I can, to be quite honest. And I appreciate those of you who, who are coming along on this journey with me. It's been a really interesting start to our podcasts and our podcast platform. And I'm just fortunate to be able to to do these things that I love doing. So today, though, we're taking a a bit of a detour from the normal, um, moving away from the X and O's and the coaching philosophies and those things. Those are the things I like talking about the most, and we'll definitely get back to them next week. But I had a conversation the other day that sparked some broader thoughts about the importance of football to American society. And I'd love to share some of those thoughts with you. And I'm I'm not going to delve into a political conversation or anything like that. Uh, in addition to being a football coach, I'm also a history teacher, and I teach a, a course on government and politics. And I got to be honest, that can be exhausting, even among 17 and 18-year-olds. I, I teach mostly seniors. Uh, and even among 17 and 18-year-olds, year we have this distinct political divide in this country, very polarized politically. 
And it can be exhausting trying to navigate that on a daily basis. So the last thing that I want to do is drag politics in to a football platform, because one of the great things about football is it's a place where people go when they want to escape the political squabbling in this country or some of the cultural issues that divide us. So this is not really going to be a conversation about politics, but it is a conversation about how football and the lessons it can teach in this current cultural moment in America is really important. So to begin, we wrapped our school year yesterday. We had graduation and graduation is a really cool time for me, particularly because I teach mostly seniors and it's a lot of celebrating and wishing kids the best and just, you know, you, you, you worked with them for a year and you've put a lot of heart and soul into trying to help them enter the next phase of their lives. And then suddenly they're, they're graduating and you're, you're shaking their hand and wishing them best of luck. And most of them, you don't see them ever again. So cool moment, sentimental moment. But I found myself in the midst of a conversation yesterday at graduation with a parent. And we were just talking about kids in general. And he made a comment I thought was really interesting. Uh, He said to me, well, first he asked how long I've been teaching. And I told him 30 years. And I think I I blacked out after that. (laughs) Because the fact I've been doing it for 30 years is astounding to me. Um, But but. He asked me a question. He said, over that time, you've been teaching 30 years, over that time, he said, how much have kids changed? Because, and this is the part I found interesting, he said, it feels like kids are a lot softer today than they were when we were growing up and that they don't want to do anything hard anymore. And I thought that was interesting. And I don't even really remember what I said in response because it was kind of chaotic at the moment. That wasn't really the place for an, an introspective conversation. But I've been thinking a lot about what he said, and I wanted to share some of those thoughts with all of you. Because I think the topic is really complicated. I mean, it's definitely true in some ways. Kids today are less willing to do some of the hard things that were once pretty much baseline expectations of young people. It's definitely true that young people are being raised in a culture where they're attached to their devices And they can struggle to focus on one thing at a time. And, you know, they can kind of swipe through their lives or dispose of things the moment that they feel some discomfort with them or dissatisfaction with them. And it's true that anxiety amongst young people is running rampant. I, I actually have students who have what are called IEPs, Individualized Educational Plans, who are that are written by administrators and social workers and guidance counselors, et cetera. And I have students whose IEPs prohibit me from making them speak in front of their peers because their anxiety is so bad that that makes them so anxious that they shut down. And that's a problem because life requires participation. And when we accommodate isolation, we're doing these people a disservice. So in my 30 years of teaching, I've definitely seen a significant amount of change in the nature of students. And it's predominantly rooted in diminished socialization and a decreased willingness really to work through things that are hard. And really, if I had to pinpoint a moment where it changed, the change has been fairly gradual. But if there was a moment, it was probably COVID. Because when the world shut down and students went remote for the better part of 18 months, they became detached from just about everything. 
I mean, we taught them through Zoom or Google Meets, but it really wasn't the same. And in schools, there was so much pressure to pass young people and not just pass them really, but to give them good grades because inequities existed in the ability to provide instruction, whether it was access to technology or schools that hadn't developed programs that were equal across the curriculum that, you know, if a child got poor grades because they didn't have access or even if they got poor grades because they were simply unwilling to participate, the parents were, would sue. And there is nothing that terrifies the school district more than the threat of a lawsuit. So what ended up happening was that the standards were essentially removed. Many schools and many places in general, even outside of schools, allowed students to simply pass uh, and, and actually at times to receive outstanding grades, even if they did nothing because those districts didn't want to get sued. And, and once that toothpaste was out of the tube, it got really hard to put it back in. So it's been hard to reinstate real standards and get kids who were basically rewarded for doing the bare minimum throughout the COVID period to play by the old rules. So yes, kids have changed. But whose fault is that, really? Who lowered the bar? Who created the accommodations? Who shaped the new reality? You know, I've always said that young people will adapt to whatever they're permitted to get away with. That's kind of part of the game between young people and older people. The older generation sets the standard and then the younger generation pushes against it as far as it can before they eventually adapt. If you set the standard high, most will rise to meet it. If you set it low, most are going to sink to that level. And unfortunately, there aren't many areas these days where the bar has not been lowered. A couple of examples. When I first started teaching, there was a test students had to pass to qualify to take an AP course, an advanced placement course. It was called advanced placement. And by definition, it wasn't for everyone. But today in our school, anyone can take AP. Anyone, any student. There's no test anymore. We've done away with it. And we did away with it because parents wanted their kids in those classes because those classes look good on college transcripts. So the school lowered the bar and allowed everyone in because of parental pressure. Another example, you used to be able to cut athletes if they weren't good enough to make a varsity sports program. Many places now have done away with cutting because they say that the practice invites bias. And when you start talking about bias, you're, you're now talking lawsuits and again, fear of lawsuits. Other things that have been done away with in many districts, not particularly ours, but many others, grade point averages, class ranks, valedictorians, again, all lowering the bar because of a fear of competition and this notion that we have, we, there's an implicit bias in the process. And every step of the way, it's been the adults who have done the lowering. It's the adults who have demanded less and less, even as this country, ironically, demands more and more from people. That's a truly striking problem. Life's getting harder and more competitive, no doubt about it. The job market, income inequality, personal debt, life is requiring people to step up. But the expectations adults are creating for young people are actually shrinking. And, you know, some people might disagree with some of these things I'm saying. They might say, well, you know, these, this isn't true. 
it's not too easy on young people. I mean, look at look at how competitive it is to get into some of the nation's best colleges these days. Kids have to work really hard to get accepted to some of these best institutions. And that's a valid point. But most elite institutions don't have to lower their standards because of the nature of supply and demand. They just have so many applicants now. They can truly choose the best and brightest or the most privileged and best connected, however that works. So yeah, you know, getting into Princeton, that's still really hard. But this is a conversation about the things that we're demanding on the day-to-day, the simple expectations about responsibility and socialization, accountability, resiliency, the ability to take criticism, the willingness to, to take a chance and fail, et cetera. Which brings me to the sport of football. You know, football is one of the few endeavors in contemporary American society where the bar has not been lowered and where things have not been made easier. Changes have come to the game, absolutely. But that's to make the game safer, and those changes are positive. The sport itself is not becoming easier. Here's one way that I can tell that this is true. My my program at Ocean City, before COVID, we had about 100 players in it from 9th through 12th grade. And this year, that number is going to be down to about 75. The world changed after COVID, for sure. And young people were required to do less. And honestly, football doesn't make that compromise. It asks young people to do hard things. Without the promise, there will be a reward at the end. And that's the proposition a lot of young people aren't willing to make right now. They have so many other outlets for entertainment in their lives, the phones and the video games and social media, that a sport like football, which is demanding and doesn't make promises as to the outcome, is just hard and many people are walking away from it. But the ones who stay, man, the ones who stick it out, the lessons they learn are invaluable. You know, I have a 10-year-old son and he plays a bunch of sports and football is one of them. And when people ask me if I worry about his safety or about him getting injured, the answer is yes, I do. But what I worry about more is where will the intangibles that he learns from football come from if he doesn't play? Where will he garner the physical and mental toughness that football facilitates or the value of learning to push through hard things and not shy away from them? I mean, other sports are hard. Basketball, lacrosse, soccer, they have their own demands, but it's not like football. Football challenges its players to execute calmly in a chaotic environment and to combine both physical and mental elements that are unique to its nature. As a coach, one thing I talk about all the time with our players, particularly in the summer when it's hot and guys are just acclimating to the tempo and the intensity of practice, is to not listen to your inner monologue that tells you how hard it is or how much you'd like for it to be over. The mind will often want to quit before the body needs to quit. And in most players, the mind is the thing that needs to be trained more than the body. Kids are often in great physical shape. They run, they lift, they do drills. But mentally, they've not been taught to endure. That's what football does more than any sport. It teaches kids to endure the challenge. And once young people learn that they can, that they can push through and come out on the other side, It builds in them a resilience that they transfer to other aspects of their lives. I've seen it happen over and over again. Football football teaches young people what life will be like. It's not easy. There are no guarantees. And sometimes, even when you do the right thing, you don't get rewarded. Yet when you push through it, you come through it stronger and better. As for the broader 
other issues. Kids being soft these days. I think it's fairly common for all generations to look at the ones who succeed them and to see them that way. Like my grandfather, for example, my father's father, he definitely thought of me like that. I mean, I didn't grow up privileged in any way. We weren't wealthy. On the <laughs> quick example, on the occasions, rare occasions, I should say, that my mom bought soda. She bought the generic bottle that said cola and not the name brand because the name brand was just too expensive. But I had some advantages that my grandfather didn't have. For example, my mom and dad were together and we had a stable home in a nice neighborhood. And I went to a nice school and I played sports and I had a summer job and I hung out with my friends. It was pretty regular stuff. But my grandfather had grown up poor during the Great Depression and he'd been in foster homes. Because his father had walked out on their family and his mother couldn't afford to take care of him. So foster homes, hard, hard life. And he'd gone on to fight in World War II. And then he spent much of his life in, in the construction business. I mean, he was a tough man and he'd been through tough times. And my life, by comparison, was a piece of cake. And I remember one time after he'd had a few drinks and he was feeling a certain kind of way, he said to me, other than football, have you ever had to do anything hard in your life? And it was kind of derogatory the way he said it. But I think that's how he saw me. He just saw me as a kid who had it easy. And obviously, what he'd been through, my life was easy compared to his. And I think that's probably how lots of older people see younger kids today. And while it's true, we've removed many of the standards that we once asked young people to reach. The one area where we haven't done that is in football. It is still a tough game that instills valuable life lessons that are hard to find anywhere else in our society. I mean, it may sound as though I'm romanticizing this a bit, the value of football. Maybe I am. I know none of this is universally true. There are many kids for whom football does not prove to be rewarding. And there are some programs and cultures who, in their emphasis on toughness and on breeding alpha males, produce bullies instead. And yes, lots of young people do work hard in other areas and are required to do hard things. From my experience, however, American society needs more of the lessons football imparts, particularly in this current moment where expectations and standards have fallen and where we are doing young people a disservice by demanding less of them. As the late Dorothy Farnan, who was the chair of an English department at a high school in Brooklyn, once said, Football may be the best taught subject in America because it may be the only subject we haven't tried to make easier. Okay, I appreciate you listening to those comments because I do think that they are important. But this is an NFL show. And I know many of you are here for real football talk, so we're going to have some on the other side of the break. Take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to do a whip around of the league uh, we're going to go division by division and look at some of the most interesting stories coming out of OTAs and the early stages of minicamp. So for the real football talk, please stick around. Kevin Smith back here on the call sheet, and I appreciate those of you who indulged me in that first part, that conversation about the importance of football to American society in this current cultural and political moment. And I felt that that was an important conversation to have. Thank you for taking that 
that journey with me. But in the second part, we're going to talk about the NFL. And it is mid-June, which means it is OTAs and now minicamp season. And everybody is still in football and shorts. But at the same time, you're starting to get some interesting storylines come out of the 32 NFL camps. And what we're going to do right here is we're going to go division by division and pick one storyline, one team or, or one storyline from each division and focus on that as we whip around the league. So let's jump in. Let's start in the NFC East, where the Saquon Barkley drama appears to be the most interesting plot line in the division. Barkley's absent from minicamp with the Giants as he works out a contract extension. And he recently categorized those negotiations as discouraging because he said that he felt like the Giants had made some misleading remarks on the contracts that they've offered to their star running back. And, you know, that I'm not saying that that's going to go bad or go sideways because they have until July 17th to agree on a long-term extension before Barkley gets locked into the franchise tag. But he's not attending OTAs. He's not at minicamp. And these things always have the possibility of dragging on and sort of souring the environment. So his goal is to get compensated as one of the top running backs in the NFL. And, you know, he may have to float the possibility of sitting out for the season if he's going to do that. The threat of withholding services is the only leverage that he really has at this stage of negotiations because the top of the top of the running back market's been really tough lately. Think about it. Ezekiel Elliott, Dalvin Cook being released because they made too much money. Aaron Jones and Green Bay taking a big pay cut, it's going to be hard for Barkley to get the money that he wants. And he could stay away from the team to make a point about his unhappiness if, a, if an extension isn't reached, but you have to figure he'll surely show up before the season starts because the only way for him to really make the money that he seeks down the road if he doesn't get the extension is to have a great year. So interesting little plot line there happening in New York with Saquon Barkley, right? His negotiating power doesn't seem to be great right now, but the Giants do need him. And so we'll see how that plays out. All right, let's move to the NFC North where the Vikings, who did in fact release the previously mentioned Dalvin Cook, just like, by the way, FFSN's Dave Stefano told you that they would when he was our guest here on the call sheet a couple of weeks ago. Great call there, Dave. But they've got another interesting contract issue to consider with star edge rusher Donnell Hunter. And that topic has garnered a lot of attention as Minnesota begins their minicamp. So far this offseason, the Vikings have released Cook, Adam Thielen, Eric Kendricks. They seem to be prioritizing signing younger players, whether they're own or in free agency. People, Players like Marcus Davenport, Byron Murphy Jr., Josh Oliver. And that brings us to the interesting question as to whether or not they will extend Hunter. Hunter's 28 years old. He's owed about $5.5 million in guaranteed salary for 2023. That is a really low number for NFL edge rushers, much less good ones like Hunter, who had 10 and a half sacks last season. Now, he, he did rework his deal last year. But after his production in 2022, he's seeking a new one. And so... Like Barkley, he's elected not to attend OTAs, and he has not shown up for this week's mandatory minicamp. The Vikings are looking at a no-brainer extension for Justin Jefferson soon. And that how that affects the Hunter negotiations will be interesting. It's going to be hard determining 
where Hunter should fall in the pecking order of NFL edge rushers. Because on one hand, he's generated the fourth most pressures per start of any edge rusher in the league since 2015. And the three guys he's behind, Miles Garrett, TJ Watt, and Chris Jones, they're superstars. So should he get superstar money? On the other hand, he's about to turn 29, and he's missed a bunch of games in recent seasons with various injuries. So the interesting question is, will Minnesota view Hunter as a valuable piece in new defensive coordinator Brian Flores' aggressive and diverse scheme and accommodate him accordingly? Or will they deem the deal too risky or too much and either look to move on from Hunter by trading him before the season, presumably, or letting him play out his deal and then move on in free agency? And it kind of seems like a 50-50 bet that it could go either way to the NFC South. Now where all eyes in Carolina are on Bryce young. Everybody's an optimist this time of year, obviously. And reports out of Carolina are no different. Everyone says young looked great during OTAs. So good. In fact, that the team elevated him past Andy Dalton to become the first team quarterback where he's been taking the bulk of reps in now minicamp practices. And this suggests the Panthers have seen enough of him already to feel confident he can run the show or that he should at least be given that opportunity. And I mean, June is not exactly a proving ground when it comes to performance, but the simple fact that Young has mastered enough of the playbook and done enough to command the huddle and earn the trust of his coaches is not insignificant. Young's also said to be picking Dalton's brain a lot and Dalton who is, he's only 35 years old, but for some reason it feels like Andy Dalton's been in the league since like 1997. But by all reports, Dalton's been great. He's been very accommodating. It seems like Dalton is accepting of his role as a mentor. And if Young can soak up as much as possible from a guy who's made 162 career starts, that's a good thing. The Panthers finished 7-10 and 10 last year, but they were just a game out of first place in a weak NFC South. And the division... It, it's up for grabs. No team has improved significantly. Atlanta's going to be better, but they're still rebuilding behind young Desmond Ritter at quarterback. And Tampa, who won the division last year at 8-9, and nine, they're entering their post-Tom Brady phase with Baker Mayfield, which is risky. The Saints brought in Ter Derek Carr, who should help them, but they're no lock to take them to the playoffs. So Carolina will be in the mix for a division title. And you know, it's definitely too early to gush, but the fact that they've elevated Young to the starting job, knowing they have a shot to win the South, should make Panthers fans pretty happy. All right, let's finish up the NFC out West and take a quick look at the Rams, who, just in case anybody forgot, like I sometimes do, the Rams won the Super Bowl just 16 months ago. Yet somehow, they feel kind of irrelevant. I don't remember any Super Bowl champ who seemed to fade from the national conversation as quickly as L.A. has. And this isn't to say the Rams aren't good or won't be contenders. They still have Aaron Donald. They have Cooper Cup. They have Todd McVay. Those three alone should make them dangerous. But for a big market with the star-studded players, there's just not much buzz going on out there in L.A. And maybe that's what coming off of a 5-12 and 12 season does to you. You just get buried in the hype cycle. San Francisco gets all the press in the West. Seattle's a feel-good story behind the reborn Geno Smith. And then Arizona's endless dysfunction keeps everybody amused. So it's easy to sleep on the Rams. 
just like much of the league did in their run to the Lombardi two years ago. This season, Matthew Stafford returns from the spinal contusion that cost him the second half of his 2022 campaign. And LA's offensive line, which was beat up last year, and Stafford got beat up too. LA used 11 different line combinations, and they moved to solidify things this offseason. That line should be better. The guy everybody seems to really like is rookie guard Steve Avia of, of TCU. He drew lots of praise at OTAs. And so too, interestingly, has Stetson Bennett, the two-time defending NCAA champion quarterback out of Georgia who could win the job as Stafford's backup. Bennett actually drew applause from his own defense for a pretty remarkable throw that he made during OTAs last week. That's pretty rare. And, you know, then again, you wouldn't know about that because, A, it's kind of silly to talk about great plays guys are making this time of year. But, B, things have been quiet in Los Angeles. And when when is that ever the case? So for the Rams, though, that might be a good thing because surprises only happen when no one sees them coming. So don't sleep on the Rams. Okay, let's move to the AFC, where in the East, all eyes are on the Jets. You may have heard that they acquired a new quarterback over the offseason. And reports out of OTAs shockingly suggest that that guy's pretty good. Everyone, of course, is gushing about Aaron Rodgers. And there's a strange vibe permeating the team. That vibe is called optimism. And it's a bit foreign for a franchise who hasn't been back to the Super Bowl since 1969. For all that optimism, and it's well-deserved, by the way, because the Jets have the makings of a really good football team. The biggest concern will be keeping Rodgers safe and upright. That is where, if there is significant cause for concern, it is warranted. New York's bigness, biggest weakness is on the offensive line, where they're unsettled at center, they're unsettled at left tackle, they're not positive who's going to start at right tackle. The whole unit's in flux. And I'm not trying to throw a wet blanket on the good vibes around the Jets, but they really need to decide on their starting five up front ASAP so that unit can get the necessary reps they need to gel and also to acclimate themselves to the myriad checks and changes that Rodgers makes at the line of scrimmage. Nobody changes things at the line more than Aaron Rodgers. And the O-line is going to need to get on the same page as him. And there's time to get it all straight, of course, no doubt about that. But if the Jets can't work those things out, then the smiles that permeate the franchise at present will turn to frowns rather quickly. In the North, there's another veteran star who's making headlines with his new team, and that's Odell Beckham Jr., who's making a comeback with the Ravens after a serious injury, knee injury that derailed his 2022 season. Beckham's fully cleared medically, but the Ravens have been bringing him along very slowly so far for obvious reasons. There's really not a lot to report about Beckham right now, and that's interesting, if only because Baltimore is keeping him under tight wraps. The Ravens spent the offseason revamping their receiving core. They now have five first-round or former first-round picks in that mix. Plenty of talent there. But lots of questions about how how all the parts will fit together under first-year coordinator Todd Munkin. Baltimore is banking most heavily on Beckham, who they signed to an eye-popping $15 million one-year deal. That's a lot of money for a guy who hasn't played in 16 months. But they're banking on Beckham because their failure to develop a better downfield passing attack under former OC Greg Roman is the primary reason Munkin was hired. Munkin's an interesting guy with a long track record of success. 
he likes to stretch the field both horizontally and vertically in the passing game, which means he'll likely find opportunities for all his receivers and will spread the ball around. Now, whether OBJ becomes a so-called featured receiver in that offense or just a cog in the broader passing machine, that'll be interesting to watch. If he can regain his pre-injury form, he's really going to boost Baltimore's offense. But if he's not, or if he's not targeted enough to, to his satisfaction, be very interesting to see if he's a team player or if he blows things up there. So keep things, keep your eye on OBJ, obviously. All right, on to the on to the South, where the Shane Steichen era is underway in Indianapolis. The interesting question that goes with that is, is the Anthony Richardson era underway as well? Richardson is currently taking snaps with the second team behind veteran Gardner Minshew. And Indy probably won't decide on a new starting quarterback for a month. So none of this really means much at the moment. But my suspicion, if I were a gambling man, my suspicion is that Minshew is going to be tough for Richardson to beat out, at least initially. Minshew's always had the moxie that you love in backup quarterbacks. And when he's been given a chance to start, he's done pretty well. At this stage of his career, Minshew's better than Dalton, who provides the veteran competition for Bryce Young in Carolina. And he's better than Davis Mills and Case Keenum, with whom C.J. Stroud is competing in Houston. I expect Young and Stroud to be the opening day starters with their respective teams, but I don't expect that of Richardson. It's not that there's any bad reports or anything negative coming out of Indy about Richardson. I just think Minshew will give the Colts a better chance to win in week one, and that Steichen will introduce Richardson into the lineup the way he did with Jalen Hurts in Philly a few years back by giving him a few packages to execute that include simple one-read passing concepts and some designed quarterback runs. That's the Hurts model, and that's a good one for Richardson to follow. And I suspect Steichen will be patient with his rookie QB, especially since he has a competent veteran like Minshew to hold down the fort in the present. Finally, to the AFC West, where reports out of Denver suggest that Sean Payton has wasted no time putting his stamp on the franchise. Sean Payton, for those of you who aren't, don't quite remember, is as old school as it gets these days. He is from the Bill Parcells coaching tree, a Parcells disciple, which means he's demanding and he holds players accountable and he doesn't pull punches. He's already been very candid with reporters about addressing the shortcomings of both individual players and the team last season. He actually said, watching tape of the Broncos last year was hard. That It was hard to watch the Broncos. And, I mean, that's about as insulting as it, it gets. I can't think of a lower insult than to say that your own team was hard to watch. But hey, it wasn't his team at the time. So maybe that's really a shot at the previous regime, the Hackett regime. But in the process of all but saying that the Broncos stunk last year and that they have significant improvement to make in order to be competitive, his players are finding their way around the way Peyton likes to do things. For example, safety Justin Simmons was asked the other day to describe what a practice led by Peyton is like. And the word he used was educational. And that's an interesting adjective. And my take on that is that there's a lot of teaching going on and that the tone of that teaching is not suggestive, that Sean Payton is not making suggestions, that he is giving demands and that things are going to be done this way, that there's going to be a purpose attached to everything. 
For example, situational football is said to be getting particular emphasis at early practices. And that's always important, but it's especially important in Denver, given the fact the Broncos were four and nine in games decided by a touchdown or less last year, and that they had some botched end of game scenarios that could have affected outcomes. The bottom line is this Peyton inherited a team that went five and 12, and he is immediately set out to remedy the qualities responsible for that failure. He knows a thing or two about building winners. So if Denver is intent on changing the culture, they probably hired the right guy. Okay, that's our whip around of the league, and that's our show for this week. I appreciate everybody taking the journey with me. We're going to get back to looking at some X and O's next year, uh, next year, next episode, uh, and looking at specifically some of the, the interesting things that offenses have been doing recently, in addition to some of the things we've already highlighted on previous episodes, like RPOs and read options and running quarterbacks and those things. But we're going to look at that at, at the vertical passing game and how that stresses defenses. So I'm hoping that you'll you'll jump on board for that. So for Kevin Smith, uh, thanks for listening. This has been another episode of the Call Sheet. Hope everybody has a great break. And if you are on summer vacation or you're heading into summer, let's get your summer on. Take care, everybody.